Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is October the 4th, 2018. It's a Thursday, and this is episode 2305 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I know what you're thinking, Thursday, time for a listener call show. That is generally what it means. It is not today. It is not today because Dorothy made one of her very rare errors, and I do mean very rare. She double-booked me guests this week. Uh, we had people booked for yesterday. We had Jeremy Zimmerman, who we had on about brewing beer like a Yeti. And she also had Chef Keith Snow booked for his show on food storage for those that don't live on carbohydrates. And uh, when I looked at it, I'm like, well, we gotta, we got to work this out. And we started looking at it, and like, if we pushed whoever we double-booked till the end of our backlog – It would have put Keith out to, like, Thanksgiving. Uh, so, and it's a good time to have Keith on and all. I just didn't want to do that to him. So we're going to preempt the listener call show today. We're going to have Keith on, and we're going to talk about food storage for those that do not live on carbohydrates specifically at all or alone. Um, Keith recently took a journey down the vegan path. And I was like, man, <laughs> I don't understand this. But I also thought, I bet you that path doesn't end up going for a very long distance. And it went for a distance of about five months. And he's kind of come back around to uh, a more meat and fat centric, centric diet. Uh, and in that, he's learned some things. And he's also always been a prepper. Keith has always been a prepper. And uh, that's why he's been working with us here at TSP for like eight years now. And so he, he's taken these recent experiences and he, he's gone over some things and worked out more ways uh, that you can store food if you're living a more paleo-primal style life. And additionally, uh, how to uh, take all of that great food uh, that you're storing and cook it into wonderful things to eat. And he'll be on with us in just a moment to talk about that. And before we bring Keith on, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day, number one, BulkAmmo.com. Look, guys, you got to have ammo for your guns, or you know what your guns are? Expensive clubs. That's the truth. Like For a gun to do what it's supposed to do, it has to have ammo. You'll find all the common calibers at great pricing with lightning-fast shipping at BulkAmmo.com. And remember, if you're an MSB member, they do do discounts for MSB members. Just go to the survivalpodcast.com and check the benefits section for the BulkAmmo.com discount. Next up today is J.M. Bullion. Uh, this is, you know, the actual precious metal. Bulk Ammo gives you the alternate precious metal, which is copper-jacketed lead. J.M. Bullion is your supplier for gold and silver and other precious metals. I have been consistent in my recommendation of 5% to 10% of your net wealth as a wealth insurance program uh, from day one on the Survival Podcast, and I continue to make that recommendation. The, the beauty with, you know, when you buy silver from a reputable dealer, it's all the same. It's all, that, that's the whole point. You get a you know a a ninety nine silver uh, coin, uh, and let's say an American Silver Eagle. It doesn't matter who you get it from; it's the same. It's like buying a Wilson basketball. It doesn't matter if you order it off Amazon. It doesn't matter if you get it at Walmart or a sporting goods store. So if you know exactly what you're going to buy, what should you do? The place that has the best customer service, free shipping, and the best price. That's where you buy from. That's why we have Jam Bullion as our sponsor because they meet those criteria. They have the best or close to the best price at all times. They have free shipping on all orders, 
And if there's ever a hiccup, ever a problem, or ain't been in years, but if there ever is, I can get the, 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 the president and owner of the company, Michael, on email personally and direct immediately. None of the other big silver houses out there allow me that kind of access to their top ownership. So I don't work with them. I work with the best. I work with the people that take care of you, and I work with the people that give you the best price. That's jambullion.com, and they do a discount for MSB members. Do you know who gets a discount on silver and gold? Nobody, because the margins are razor thin. But you do through the MSB and through our relationship with JM Bullion. Check them out today. Again, they're another sponsor. We've been with about eight years. They always take care of the audience. Always, always, always infinity. JMBullion.com. It's where I buy my gold and silver and where you should, too. Next up, let's take a look at history. David Verne does have a segment for us at TCP Wiki, but we haven't been getting one every day from him. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to push his for today till tomorrow. And I'm going to read the This Day in History segment off History Channel uh, for the year 2011 because I think this is a very teachable moment and a good reminder of why you don't trust the state. Even if you are a, a small government type or whatever, instead of like a complete stateless society voluntarist like myself, this is a lesson here. Uh, on this day, 25 years, uh, this day in 2011, a man who served 25 years for murder was exonerated by DNA evidence. And when I read this, you're going to see that it goes from bad to worse to horrible to awful to disgraceful. On this day in 2011, Michael Morton, who spent 25 years in prison for his wife's murder, is released after DNA evidence implicates another man in the crime. The prosecutor in the case would later accused of withholding evidence indicating that Morton was innocent. On the afternoon of August the 13th, 1986, a neighbor found 31-year-old Christine Morton beaten to death in her bed in Williamson County, Texas, home near Austin. She shared with Michael, a grocery store manager, and their three-year-old son. Six weeks later, Morton, who had no criminal record or history of violence, was arrested for Christine's murder. At trial, the prosecution contended that Morton had slain his wife of seven years <coughs> because she refused to have sex with him on the night of August 12th, his, 20th, his 32nd birthday. <clears throat> I'm sorry, guys, I got a little choked up there. but um, How would they even know that? It just seems ridiculous. Morton maintained he had nothing to do with his wife's death and said an intruder must have killed her after he left for work early on the morning of August the 13th. No witnesses or physical evidence linked Morton to the crime. Nevertheless, he was convicted on February 17th, 1987, and sentenced to life behind bars. In 2005, Morton's defense team asked the state to test the DNA on a variety of items, including a blood-stained bandana found by police the day of the murder at an abandoned construction site close to the Morton home. The Williamson County District Attorney successfully blocked all requests for testing until 2010, when a Texas appeals court ordered that the testing on the bandana take place. In the summer of 2011, the test results revealed the bandana contained Christine Morton's blood and hair, along with the DNA of another man, Mark Allen Norwood, a felon with a long criminal record who worked in the Austin area as a carpet layer at the time of the murder. Michael Morton was released from prison on October 4, 2011, and officially exonerated in December of that year. A month after Morton was freed, Norwood, 57 at the time, was arrested for Christine Morton's killing. 
In March 2013, he was found guilty of her murder and sentenced to life in prison based on DNA evidence. Norwood was also indicted for killing a second woman, Deborah Baker, whose 1988 murder in Austin had remained unsolved. Like Morton, Baker was bludgeoned to death in her bed. She lived just blocks from Norwood at the time of her murder. I'm pausing for a second. Had they actually done the right police work at the time, they may have caught this guy instead of focusing on the husband. And not only would he not have spent 25 years in prison, but, but, what's the other side of it? This other lady, Deborah Baker, may still be alive today. We don't know that, but it's definitely a possibility. Here's where it goes. This is bad, worse, awful. Here's where it goes to the disgraceful. In October 2012, after a nearly year-long investigation, the State Bar of Texas filed disciplinary petition against Kent Anderson, the prosecutor in the Morton case, who became a district judge in 2002, alleging he withheld various pieces of evidence from Morton's attorneys, including a transcript of an August 1986 taped interview between the case's lead investigator and Morton's mother-in-law, in which she stated that Morton's three-year-old son had told her in detail about witnessing his, witnessing his mother's murder and said his father was not home at the time. In a November 2013 deal to settle the charges against him, Anderson agreed to serve 10 days in jail, perform 500 hours of community service, and give up his law license and pay a $500 fine. Yeah, and I'm supposed to trust the state. This man, this man withheld evidence knowingly that sent an innocent man to prison for 25 years, separated him from his son for 25 years. He does 10 days in jail, 500 hours of community service, and gives up his law license and pays a $500 fine. If there were any justice in the world, the penalty would be something like, well, you do 25 years. You took 25 years, you get. Here's an even better one, though. This is a more libertarian form of justice. Whatever you make in income for the rest of your life, 70% of it goes to this man at the rate of $100,000 a year until it's paid off. So you pay him $2.5 million, we'll call it even. Until then, whatever you make, 70% of every dollar you make goes to this man. I don't care if you have to live on soup cans in the back of a car. You screwed this man out of his life. You owe it to him to give something back. But this is why I'm opposed to the death penalty, folks, right here. This is why. It isn't that there aren't crimes that I think aren't suitable for it. There certainly are. It's that if you cannot trust the state, you cannot trust them with the power to take human life. This shows that clearly. It's why I wanted to give it to you today. Imagine yourself. Imagine yourself. Imagine your son. Imagine your father. Imagine any one of the men in your life that you care about doing 25 years in prison for killing a wife that he didn't kill, being separated from his son, and at the same time losing the wife that he loved. This is disgraceful. And the person behind it gets 10 days in jail, 500 hours of community service, and a $500 fine. And justice for all, I say, and justice for some. And unfortunately, not this man. With that, let's go on to happier things. Let's get Chef Keith on here and start talking about Food storage for those that do not live on carbs. With that, hey, Keith, man, welcome to the Survival Podcast. Hey, Jack, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm glad to have you here today. We are here today to talk about food storage for people that cannot live on carbs alone, or maybe <laughs> even much at all, right? But yeah. yeah, And I would say for you, this is a little different. You're on the expert council, so people are more familiar with you than some guests, but we got people show up every day for the first time. 
So for people that don't know who Chef Keith Snow is, give us a little bit of your background. Take us back to like how you got into the food industry and you know some of the, the positions you've had as chefs and, and how it led you to what you do now. Sure. Well, I actually started way young. I was about 14 years old, and I started washing dishes just as a side job in high school. And, um, you know, when you're young like that, you don't really appreciate that you're learning things. Now, Nowadays, I, I know I was learning a lot, and I kind of studied under this uh, Navy chef. He was an Italian guy. And, um, yeah, I kept washing the dishes, but I started to cook, and I developed an interest. And I had a you know a food-centric family as well. My mom is Italian, and we had a lot of great food growing up, and that's what started the whole thing. And uh, I pursued college. I mean, I was an ice hockey college and played ice hockey, and I studied business and finance. And the cooking was always something that was kind of on the side. I never really intended it to become, you know, a career or anything. And just slowly but surely, uh, more and more, I focused on the food, and um, I had various, you know, chef positions at different resorts, and um, ultimately just accepted a job uh, as the executive chef of a huge ski resort in Colorado. And that was a while back. And while I was there, uh, it gave me an opportunity to do a lot of media, uh, TV and radio and all kinds of photo opportunities. And it was just something, again, that um, I didn't realize it at the time that that would be a valuable thing later on. But eventually we had a daughter and we wound up uh, not wanting to raise her at 10,000 feet above sea level. And, um, Moved to a farm in North Carolina. I just I flew back to North Carolina, bought property, and here we were on this farm adventure. And uh, through that, I started to learn a lot about local foods. This was 2004, and back then we were in Atkins diet was like the main dietary trend, and the farm was nothing. And I was meeting farmers and uh, planting gardens and drinking raw milk and getting you know half a cow and heirloom pork and all that kind of stuff and at the same time I started to get into culinary media I shot a pilot for the Food Network and uh, eventually wound up on YouTube and uh, started HarvestEating.com and blogging and all that and through that process um, you know I, I just kind of built a name for myself in the in the farm to table movement so as that progressed I eventually wound up with cookbook offers and I wrote a cookbook, the Harvest Eating Cookbook, which is still on Amazon these days. And I think that came out in 2009. And, and with that, I was able to um, travel all over the world promoting the book and do some really big events, you know, at, the, at uh, Epcot Center and in New York City and um, just all over the place. I appeared in a lot of um, national media, Martha Stewart, um, Parade Magazine, Women's Health, all kinds of things like that. Really, uh, to build this thing. Very cool, man. And and over the years, I've watched you kind of journey a, a bunch of different ways. You had to move to Montana, move to Florida. Uh, you you've explored different culinary paths as well. And a while back, somebody said to me, "Chef Keith's gone vegan." And I said, "What the <laughs> what the hell?" I, okay, you know. And I went, like, "You had vegan on your site and all." I'm like. You know, this is, I, I don't know how long this is going to last, but one of the reasons I appreciate you is integrity that, like, if this is what I'm doing, then this is what I'm teaching. Um, but that only went on for a while. So what, what made you go that path in the first place? Was it curiosity? Was it health reasons? Was it, let's see what this is about? I mean, why? 
That's a great question. And by then, I had already, um, you know, been down the the food storage route and and learned a lot about survival. I found your show and all that. Um, and I was going along eating probably a lot like you. I was feeling fine and all that. And then um, I guess it was April of 2017. Uh, our nine-year-old, uh, he was eight at the time. Our eight-year-old son uh, had 15 seizures one morning. And we've been a family that you know we're focused on food, we're healthy, we're fit. Um, never really had an issue with health, and um, you know the kids would go to the doctor for a checkup once a year, you know dentist, whatever. But not a lot of health issues. And all of a sudden, um, my son starts having these frontal lobe seizures, and uh, this is a really scary thing. So we wound up um, for about six months just. Uh, in hospitals, overnight stays, getting rushed to the uh, to the hospital by ambulance, uh, tests, uh, specialists, pediatric neurologists, trying to solve this thing. And when you start learning about epilepsy and and seizures, uh, oftentimes people talk about the ketogenic diet. And some some doctors to recommend it, some of them just aren't. Um, but we were. Running out of options, he still, you know, every couple of weeks he, he'd be having these seizures, and you know, it was really sad. One time he, you know, he'd have a seizure and he couldn't remember anything that had happened. He forgot Christmas um, one year. So this this type of thing is frightening, and we just, you know, we were running out of options. And honestly, I was, you know, and my wife too, kind of panicked. You know, what are we going to do? Our friends uh, had a daughter, have a daughter. She's a little bit younger than our son, and she went through the same thing and wound up having to have brain surgery and had about 40% of her brain removed, um, which is frightening, and that did cure her epilepsy. But through that process, we eventually were recommended, because we could not control his seizures, of putting him on the ketogenic diet. So we started out saying, okay, and we're going to do this, and uh, he was miserable on the ketogenic diet because they were, I mean, they want him to have less than 10 grams of carbs per day. Mm-hmm. And for a boy like this, a heavy eater, I mean, he eats three or four apples a day. I mean, he loves all kinds of food. And watching him struggle with this, he could not go to the bathroom. And we knew that, you know, when you take away somebody's fiber, there'd be problems. So we started to supplement with heavy amounts of fiber and uh, the house was a nightmare. I mean, everybody was um, just upset. And finally, you know, I was talking to the doctor and saying this, you know, he was still having seizures. I said, this ketogenic diet doesn't seem like it's working either. And they said, you know, uh, well, maybe, you know, what about a vegan diet? Is there any research on that? And I'm like, you're asking me? So I went on the Internet and I saw a couple of people, rec- you know, stuff on the Internet. Yeah, I, I cured my seizures with, with the vegan diet. And we were perplexed, frustrated, scared. I said, all right, F it. We're going on a vegan diet. And, and I'm the one that directs all the food in the house. And your statement was true. What, what I'm doing is what I teach. It's hard for me to, you know, I'm eating vegan, but you eat meat. Or I eat meat, you eat vegan. It's, I can't really square that. So we just switched over to a vegan diet. And um, he he was didn't didn't help with the seizures. He enjoyed the food better and uh, I really loved the food. It was very easy. The, the grocery bill dropped a lot. Um, but what happened was, I, and I was, it was five months. I was vegan and my wife, everybody. And we had blood tests because, you know, we would do blood tests every so often. So we had something to go by. We had a, we had all the data on both my wife and I. And after five months, um, I quit. But after about 
three months, I really started, you know, I was miserable. My knees were swollen. Um, I was a mess. I, I couldn't sleep at night. My pelvis was hurting. I'm just like, and I wasn't eating bread, bread, bread. I mean, I was eating salads and rice and beans and oatmeal, you know, things that would, would be reasonable um, vegan foods. But I cut out all the dairy, all the meat. And uh, finally, I just said to my wife, it was March 27th. I said, honey, I, I just can't do this anymore. And uh, I went into the doctor, got blood work. And, I, and then she went two weeks later. And our blood, I mean, if, it, if the exact same thing didn't happen to both of us, uh, I just couldn't believe it. Our triglycerides through the roof, the cholesterol was like so low. The doctor thought, oh, that's the lowest cholesterol I've ever seen. I'm so, you know, you're fine. You're fine. And the blood sugar was really high. My wife was pre-diabetic. She was two or three points from pre-diabetic. And this is a woman that when people see her, they think, man, are you are you an Ironman athlete? I mean, she is just ripped and fit, and she was a couple of points away from being a diabetic. So I immediately that day after I got back and got those results, you know, maybe it was uh, I don't know, it was later that afternoon that they were very quick about it, and I said, that's it, I'm going, I'm going to start eating eggs tomorrow. Mm. So I just completely stopped it, and went right back to a a low carb diet. I mean, my body was probably thinking, what the heck is going on? And she followed very soon after 60 days later, we both went in and had full blood workups and every single parameter went back to normal and even a little bit better. Triglycerides dropped the cholesterol. The good cholesterol was non-existent before. Um, but that came way up all the things the blood sugar down. So it did not work and I had to abandon it. Um, I felt like an ass, I'll be honest, because I, you know, I don't want to say I wasn't beating people over the head with it on my website or anything, but, you know, a lot of, I've been asked through the years, dozens and dozens of times, we're vegan, we love listening to you, but we want some content. So, again, I can't, um, I can't put out there what I'm not doing. So now I'm, you know, on a, a fairly low carb, about 50 grams of carbs per day. And, um, you know, when I do have carbs, it might be a, you know, a teeny bit of potato here and there or, you know, three or literally three or four tablespoons of white rice if I'm going to have something like that. And I just feel much better. My joints are better. Um, I lost weight and have kept it off. I mean, everything is better for me. So it's just been kind of a been a crazy situation. What's what's up with your kid, though? Well, he um, he was put on a second medication. It's called um, Keppra. And this is a medication that is the doctors told us, and, and I mentioned my friend's daughter, they took Keppra, and after, I don't know, six weeks, she she was biting her grandmother and just having rage fits. And the doctors told us, they said, either it's going to work or you're going to pull them off of it because of rage. I mean, it's well documented. They call it Keppra rage, where you just get insane on this stuff. And we did go through six weeks where, and he's homeschooled, where he was so belligerent um, he would just refuse to do school. And this isn't a kid that refuses anything. He's very pliable and you know, he's a great kid. He wouldn't do it. He was, his eyes hurt. I mean, he had tons of, um, side effects, but eventually they subsided and now he has not had a seizure since March of 2018. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're still very cautious and hopeful that it continues. He does have, um, mini seizures called, he calls them feelings. They're actually, the technical term is auras. 
And it's something like a, it would be like butterflies in your stomach. And mm. when he was having seizures, one of those auras would often um, come right before. Like he'd say, I have a feeling. Um, not to get too off topic, but did you guys ever consider the possibility of... Uh, He's doing much better. I haven't been to the hospital since March. But the, you I mean, you'd be staggered of what these bills cost. I mean, it is, it's absolutely frightening. I mean, a two days in the hospital is $37,000. Yeah, it's it's insane. I, I've I've been through some of it for some different situations. Um, not to go too far off topic, but did you at any time during all of this consider CBD oil? Not only did we consider it, we did try it. Okay. And um, he just didn't seem to. We we tried it for about two and a half months, and he didn't really respond to it. it didn't affect him. In any way other than nothing, it just was no no effect. I, I only ask because it'll say 500 emails telling you that you need to go get CBD oil. Okay, uh, yeah, <laughs> but it does. It works. Ama- it works amazing for some people, and it, you know. But that's one of the big things I always try to tell people: like, just because you read it on the internet doesn't mean it's true, and even when it is, it doesn't mean it's true for everyone all the time. Um, so, uh, getting back on track here, what what are you eating now? Kind of what is your daily you know, typical diet look like today? Um, well, maybe three eggs for breakfast, uh, three eggs and, and an avocado or one and a half avocados for breakfast. So a lot of fat and I'll, you know, literally put in probably three tablespoons of butter in the pan before I fry the eggs or scramble the eggs, something like that. And maybe lunchtime, um, nuts, uh, you know, a salad with a lot of like fattening blue cheese dressing, Maybe some more avocado, cheese, um, salami, and provolone roll-ups, tuna fish, that sort of thing. And dinner time, um, you know, Brussels sprouts, salad, um, beef, chicken, pork, um, things like that. You know, heavy on the fat, and again, trying to keep the carbs about 50 grams per day or less seems to work really well. Um, for me, and I definitely, you know, I do things like I eat uh, flax seeds to uh, keep the regularity there. Um, I take magnesium powder as a supplement. Um, but those are the things that seem to really work for me, you know, diet-wise. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned flax. We found this product that we buy a lot of lately. The reason it's not been an item of the day is because it's, it sells for stupid expensive on Amazon. But uh, they're called flat-outs. And uh, they, they're made with – they're not all made. The ones we buy are made with a, a high c- amount of flax content. So on a carbohydrate thing, one of them is like – it's like 15 carbs, but by the time you take the fiber out of it for net carbs, it's like seven carbs for one of them. And it either makes a good sandwich or like it is substitute for a bun on a burger or – They're, they're kind of like two round things held together in the center that fold over, and hence they call them flat outs. If you cut them in half right there, you basically have two taco shells. Neat. And, yeah, I don't yeah, look that up. Those are great, man. And the flax is the big thing. It has a high fat content, high fiber content, and that keeps your overall carbohydrates down. But uh, we've, we've played with flax a lot ourselves, and people freak out because when you look at the calories, like, oh, my God, it, it's, it's fat calories and I know what they told you, but I also know what works for people and in most cases. Because like, I, I always try to be clear on this. There are people that eat the standard recommended food pyramid, food plate, whatever the hell it is now, diet, which is basically the nutrient breakdown of a, of a bag of cattle feed, and they do great on it. And if that's yeah. you and it makes you happy, 
Godspeed. But, you know, there's a lot of us that we have found this to not quite be what we were told that it was. Um, now that you're eating this way, like, how does this affect your food storage plan? I love avocados, man, but the only way I know to store an avocado is on a tree. So <laughs> how, do you, how do you adapt your food storage stuff here? Yeah, and this is, um, this is definitely an interesting point. And um, I have a lot of carbohydrates stored. I mean, I definitely have, I have rice and beans and wheat and oats and all kinds of things like that. Um, but when you start thinking about this, and this is what kind of, again, trying to be as genuine as possible, I recommend people do f food storage. And to your point, there's a zillion vegans out on Instagram that look and feel wonderful. Of course, that's what they say. Um, and then there's also people that eat the way we do and feel great. So, again, it's definitely a, a personalized thing. But I still would want uh, in my course, Food Storage Feast, it, it has a lot of there's like 60, 75 videos in there. And a lot of them are on carbohydrate foods. And I definitely recommend people to store those. But in order to kind of um, shore up the, the supplies um, for the, the diet that I eat now, things like um, cans of coconut milk, coconut butter, um, tons of different beef jerky, turkey jerky, um, salmon jerky, pork jerky, canned bacon. Um, I buy that stuff by the case. Um, canned butter, the red feather butter, I buy that by the case. Um, olive oil, coconut oil, um, commercial lard. It's very hard to find uh, lard that's going to last because if it's not filtered properly, it will spoil. Um, so I keep a lot of lard. Um, heavy, heavy on tuna fish and not just the, uh, the standard sort of white albacore tuna. I do, I try to find the Italian tuna that's packed in olive oil. It's got a lot of fat in it. Um, so I have, I have a lot of that and pouch tuna, uh, canned salmon, sardines. And then I'll do, um, quite a bit of canned beef, like beef chili and just roast beef in a can. There's, there's a, a lot of stuff. Like that, and I do keep nuts. Now these aren't a super long-term thing. I'll I'll buy nuts and then freeze dry, not freeze dry them, vacuum pack them, and I try to run through them. They haven't really spoiled on me yet. Sometimes I'll keep them in the freezer, but then real heavy on freeze-dried stuff. And and the the food storage feast course is a lot of videos um, with freeze-dried foods. And, and I got to tell you, I've been cooking for decades, and freeze-dried foods are tricky things to cook with. And that's why I put a lot of emphasis on on uh, making good recipes with them. So uh, I keep quite a bit of freeze-dried stuff, all manner of ground um, beef, you know, beef chunks, chicken, pork crumbles, tons of different freeze-dried cheeses, uh, eggs and bacon, egg powder, um, a lot of mayonnaise, a lot of condiments, you know, mustard, pickles, lots of different olives. You know, basically any kind of high-fat item that's shelf-stable butter, we keep a lot of that as well. And I was eating some of our peanut butter, I don't know, maybe it was two months ago, and it had a, a pack date of 2010 on it. I mean, that stuff was fine. There was nothing wrong with it. And I didn't do anything special with it. I just put it inside of a five-gallon bucket with a gamma lid. I mean, it was not done. Nothing was done to it. So those are some of the things that I suggest storing, but then also – um, you know, how much of what are we preparing for? Preparing for the, the lights being out forever or just having the stuff in case, uh, you know, there's a supermarket run. Also, I mean, having chickens like or ducks like you do, having a supply of eggs because it is difficult to find 
um, good eggs. I mean, sometimes you get them, sometimes you don't. So having a, a way to raise, you know, some meat and eggs, you know, maybe you can get a dairy goat. Um, but then also having a freezer just absolutely uh, stocked up with beef and pork and, and these type of items. I mean, this is what I'm definitely recommending to people. I think that's one of the big things that I've tried to get across to people. I have three deep freezers. And food stores in there beautifully. And people are like, well, if the power goes out, I have a generator. Right? I mean, it's not like it's not like that food's not stored because one of the primary reasons I store food is for my convenience. What are we going to eat tonight? I don't know. Let's go out to go shopping in the in the in the outbuilding. Let's look in this chest freezer. Gee, there's a there's a, a backstrap of venison. I I think we're having that tonight. And, and I think people have gotten to the point where they're a bit afraid in the prepper space specifically of things like you know having a significant amount of frozen food as your storage. But you know if you look at longevity and health and everything, modern electricity had a big role in that. And, and I, I don't think it's that big of a, a deal. To have you know a reasonable generator that can run your chest freezers and 60 gallons of gas, and you know if we have that kind of an apocalypse where that's not sufficient, I'll pull all the food out, jerk it, make it into jerky, make it into biltong, what have you, um, and you're in a totally different world, you know, Mad Max world at that point. For day to day, including common storage needs, I don't have a problem with freezing stuff at all. Uh, if you're a gardener, and I know you are, like. Canned green beans, they're okay, but come on, Keith. Canned green beans, really, they're just not, they're nothing like, you know, fresh green beans, you know, sautéed with some butter and maybe some bacon bits or something. Um, but a, if you do a, a blanch and freeze of green beans, they're pretty close to fresh, you know what I mean? Uh, definitely. Yeah, and, there, and there's other methods. I mean, and I wouldn't advise people because I've been burned by this. I went out, and this was years and years ago when I first started getting into this. Um, we we paid I think about two hundred and fifty dollars for um, part of a cow, local cow. Mm. Put it in a freezer, and it wasn't a dedicated freezer. It was a fridge freezer unit. Uh, we barely fit it all in there, and of course, it was in the garage. A circuit breaker went, and we lost all of it. Now, if you're going to start like like you're saying with three, you definitely need to have the generator simultaneously. You don't want to buy all that meat because power can go out pretty quickly. You definitely want to have the backup. Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the things that I've been researching is there's a lot of generators, you know, like the Honda 2000 and Yamaha 2000. These little, they're very portable generators, and there's kits that you can convert them to run on propane, and it's not very expensive. It might be a couple hundred bucks. There's all kinds of videos on YouTube showing you how to convert them. And what I think would be really smart is to have a tank buried. I mean, if you had, if you could bury a 200 gallon propane tank. And just have it there specifically to run those generators to keep these frozen food items. How cool would that be? Because that could get you through uh, a lot of time. I mean, we had a 500-gallon tank buried at uh, one of our properties. We used it for hot water. We had two dishwashers, a family of five, and a huge stove. I mean, I cooked the crap out of the food in that house. And that thing lasted three and a half years. So I think if you had something like that, and you don't have to have a... 200-gallon tank, yeah, it's an investment. But this could keep your, uh, you know, a bank of freezers going for a pretty long time. Well, if you're going to go that route, then you, it's it's probably, if you have the money, 
uh, and for your overall convenience in your home, it's probably worth looking at a standby generator that just runs the house. I mean, that's... And when we looked at it, the, the cost of us putting in a larger tank is pretty cost prohibitive because we basically need to jackhammer a, a trench deep enough to get the tank far enough away from the house to make it okay. You can only put like a 120-gallon tank close to your house. Everything else has to go away from it. But, uh, yeah, I, I, I completely agree with that. And, you know, the little generators, like you say, they're great. I love them. They're quiet. They, they, they sip gas. We have an 8,500-watt Troy built that I paid like 500 bucks for for sale at, at Lowe's. I, you know, it's how many extension cords do I want to run? That's 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 my limit. It will run my freezers. It will run my refrigerator in my house. It will run my TV set. It will run my computer. It will run my fish tanks. It will run my, my pumps for my aquaponics system. It's how long do I think the power is out and how many extension cords do I want to pull out. And so I think that one way or another, if you're going to rely on – uh, even if it's not for your, your, your preps, right? If you're going to have a significant investment in food that you're relying on freezing for, then you should have some sort of backup plan. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And I know a, a couple of years ago, whenever it was, you had um, that guy on uh, from CoolBot, and those are pretty handy units as well um, to make you know an extra refrigerator outside. And there's a lot of people messing around with solar power if you're in a place that has reliable sun. And, um, I mean, you, you can run things like that, a small air conditioner on solar if you have the right setup. Again, the costs can get a little uh, wacky. But, like, to your point, um, I mean, if you go Mad Max, you know, you might have to eat carbohydrates. Yeah. What, yeah. what can you do? So store the rice and beans, and they're there. You know, your beans last long as the pharaohs. So, you know, it's there as your, your – there's your – there's your battery backup for yourself, I guess, the way to look at it. What about high-fat items? What are some of the ways that we can store more high-fat items? Well, like I mentioned earlier, um, things like you know canned canned items, tuna fish, salmon, um, sardines, there's a lot of fat in these things, and um, bacon. Um, and then the freeze-dried things, and you, don't really, you don't really need to do much to that. It lasts a long time. They generally don't have too much fat in them. But, you know, that's really going to be about it. Cheese, you know, you can have freeze-dried cheese. So I think looking at canned items and a lot of condiments, I mean, for me, just last night, in fact, I went into the – we had iceberg lettuce, which I know they say doesn't have any nutrition, but I absolutely love the stuff. And I cut a piece of uh, – a head of iceberg lettuce in half, and then I went and put some uh, oil-packed tuna fish on top of it. Um I made a very fatty dressing. I had a bunch of uh, olives all over it, some jarred roasted red peppers. Yeah, there's no fat in those. Um, and cheese and bacon. And on top of that, and I mean, I was full until this morning after, from eating something like that. So there's there's ways to do it if if you want to get a uh, you know a, a little more more into it. But things like canned coconut milk. There's if you get the the full fat kind. I mean, simmering beef in canned coconut milk with dried spices that you store. I mean, you can come up with some amazing um, dishes and then butter. Like, you know. You're going like Thai curry stuff with stuff like that. Right. Yeah. yeah, like Thai curries and you add butter to those things. Or uh, recently I made some butter chicken. And, I mean, a lot of the – except for the chicken, everything else was, um, you know, from, from uh, shelf-stable items. And it is very filling, very, very high in fat. And also amazing taste. So there's uh, with a little knowledge and a little practice, 
You know, and you need to be practicing. This is the thing that gets me is so many people are thinking about this stuff, but they don't really cook this way and they don't really use what's in their, their storage. I mean, it's, it's a fun experiment or a fun uh, thing to do is to go in there. You know, how can I, from preps or, or the, the deep pantry, uh, not the deep state, but the deep pantry and, uh, <laughs> and, you know, make a great meal. So there, there's ways to do it. Well, and like you make a good point with like canned fish products. I think it's a very overlooked thing. And, and everybody has probably had the experience of like the stinky sardine experience of like the, the 75 cent uh, a can, uh, cheapo sardines that are smaller than your little finger. And they just, I, I'll, I'll be honest, I even like those, but I don't like them a lot. But like the, the sardines I've been recommending that you can get on Amazon, they're made by a company called Matisse Gallego. And they're in olive oil. It's basically the ingredients are fish, salt, olive oil. That's it. And when you look at the breakdown on those, they're uh, a can, 228 calories, 130 is, is fat. And like the highest quality fats in the world, it's fish oil and it's olive oil. And these things don't look like, I don't know if you've ever worked with this brand, Keith, but they don't. They don't look anything like what you typically buy in a store where you open it up and it's like eight or 12 little tiny things with, you know, you, they, they just look gruesome. Uh, these, like, it can has three. They're big, they're plump, they taste good. And I saw this dude, I don't know if you've checked out his YouTube channel. Uh, it's this guy over in France. He's called Alex the French Guy. Yeah, no, I know who he is. He's and he, funny he as fried, hell. <laughs> he fried, oh, he's hilarious, right? He's got a great personality and, and whatnot. He fried sardines, and I thought this was insane. Like, they'll just fall apart. But he basically used, like, parchment in the frying pan and fried them on that, and then he did them up. And they looked fantastic. I'm like, I still haven't tried that one. But, like, I think getting creative is kind of where you were going there, and that's that's the key. Like, yeah, you could just pop one of these cans of sardines open, but, like, you were mentioning avocado and lettuce and stuff. One of my favorite things to do with these sardines, I'll take these guys and I'll put them in a, a – I usually use the uh, romaine lettuce because I just like it better. But, like, I'll take one sardine. I'll drop it in that romaine lettuce. Uh, then I'll do, like, some mashed avocado on it and then, like, a sprinkling of roasted hemp seed and and then roll that up. That's It's fantastic. Uh, I've done – That know, sounds good. You know, instead of hemp seed, I've done you know, walnuts. Uh, are good as well, especially black, if you can get them without killing yourself to get the meats out of them. Black walnut, uh, all of that type of thing. It's, it's just fantastic, and it's easy to do. A little chili pepper to that, and you know, and all of a sudden, a person that would never eat a sardine's like, "Well, this is really good. What is it? It's a sardine." And I've had people try that brand, and they don't even like if, if they if you don't if they don't see it, you make some up, but they don't even believe it's sardines because really, it's it's small fish. I mean, sardines is a generic name. Yeah, no, I, and I've seen those and eaten those great big ones, and those are far better than the little kind of hairy little bony ones. Um, so, yeah, there, there's things like that. I mean, another thing that um, you go to France and there's jars of pate that last a long time, and those things are just loaded with really healthy fats. So that's the kind of stuff to, to keep around. But overall, um, you know, learning to cook with, I think, freeze-dried foods is important as well. Um, but all these other strategies and just going out. You don't have to buy it all at once. This is what people get a little tripped up on. They go out and spend a thousand dollars. I mean, you can go and buy a couple of cans of sardines. You can order them on Amazon. Just buying something every week and building it. I mean, it is amazing how much food we've built up through the years, and we do pull from it. I mean, we use it on a regular basis. And like you said, a lot of times, I mean, who the heck wants to go to the store every single day? You can go in there. 
Uh, I mean, we'll eat, you know, at least for the kids, they'll eat rice and beans once a week, and they love it. They absolutely love it. And other other soups and stuff. Um, today I pulled stuff out of the freezer, and we're going to be making um, a French beef stew. So there's a lot of options and a lot of things that people can do um, to be prepared. But the, the big issue is you have to make a point to store food because there's probably a lot of people in the, in the audience listening still that that they know it's a good idea, they're going to get to it, but they haven't yet. And uh, I, I think it's it's crazy. I mean, what do you think about – I mean, it seems to me that there's a lot of really weird financial news out there. Uh, I think actually on the financial front, I think we're going to be good for a while. My concern is the while will end. I don't know when, but I know that it will because Spirko's seventh law of life is everything is a cycle. And if you want to see what's going to happen next – Look what happened before. And the real danger, this is going to sound nuts, is how high this market can go. Because the higher you go, the harder you fall. And I, I think for the next couple of years, absent some torpedo out of left field, some black swan moment, um, you're going to see major economic increases. I think actually, for all the hatred people have, Trump will get reelected unless we have that you know left field torpedo come in. Uh, I don't know if you've been paying attention to the trade war stuff, but so Mexico and Canada crumbled. They, they folded like a, like a cheap suit. Uh, Japan is not coming to the negotiating table. Japan is setting a table for us to come to them. Uh, so EU, you know what the EU is. Once that, like, this is a domino theory that Trump got right, right? Once one falls, they all fall. So there's going to be great trade news. They're probably going to get a deal with North Korea. That has nothing to do directly with trade, but it'll be good economic sentiment. But sooner or later... There's all of this fake money, and there's all of these problems that are underneath. Sooner or later, that has to correct. So even though it may not correct for three years, and it may not, or four, and it may not, the next recession, take it to the bank, or don't, will be bigger than the last one. Because we will have a lot more descending to do. Right. If you if, if we're one day looking at the market and, and this is not hyperbole and it's like Dow 36,000, 36, what does it look like when you have a correction analogous to 2008? Yeah. What, where was the market? In? I can't even remember where it was in, in 2008. 14-ish, I think, and it went down to seven. Wow. Okay, yeah. so like at the lowest, it was in 2000. It was 2009 in February. It was down like 7,200 or 7,800. Okay, so now take the market at, let's just to make an even round number, 40K. And you have a 50% drop in the market. You have a 20,000 point drop in the market. And yes, it's the same percentage, but the psychology of that is devastating. And it causes a lot of panic and a lot of... So I think sooner or later, we are going to, you know... We're going to have a recession. Why? Because there's always recessions. And I think the next one, if there's some, if it's not a garden variety recession, and sooner or later we'll have one that's not garden variety. So you're going to have some. You're going to have cycles. And then you're going to have some where you have some sort of cataclysmic event coinciding with a general cycle, such as student loan debt repayment. The only thing that's keeping that from going nuclear right now is the government backs it. But if there's a point where there's enough people in default, And if you add something like automation and the way that's going, and Amazon came out and said by 2021 they're going to have something like 3,000 self-service grocery stores in America. Walk in, put your shit in your cart, walk out. Never talk to anybody. 
Never, you don't pay, you have an account, you walk in, it charges you when you walk out the door. And, That's great. Okay, so there's something like 200,000 people employed as cashier, or two million, two, two million people employed as cashiers in America. Two million. Like, we don't need you anymore. You know, I mean, it's like, so, so if you get like that kind of hitting its, its, its zenith at the same time that you have a student loan crisis, it's even worse than we have now, which would make sense. because if you're dropping employment, that's, that's how the student loan thing gets hurt. Right. So if those two things coincide with a natural cycle recession, yeah, I, now I do think like everybody and their mother's calling for a recession next year. No one knows why other than. It's all fake money. Well, it's always fake money. So I, I, I'm not I'm not on that bandwagon. I, I'm really not. But I am on the, there is the point where all these things connect, and when they connect, you better be prepared for it. Yeah, I know. I remember um, hearing about this guy, maybe it's two or three years ago, talking about he had a book out, Dow 20,000, and everyone said he was out of his mind, never going to happen. <laughs> I even thought, what is he? This guy is never going to get to 20,000. Look at look at where we are now. But yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess the thing that I look at that kind of frightens me the most is, you know, the dollar keeps getting stronger, and look how many of these, you know, emerging markets are, I mean, these people are hurting in a lot of countries. We didn't really have that in, in 2008. But, um, yeah, I, uh, I hope you're right. I, I don't want to I don't want to be eating out of my pantry because I need to. That's yeah. for sure. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. You mentioned the Dow 20,000 thing. I remember a long, long time ago. I was probably 22 years old, maybe 21. I was broke enough that it was when I used to go to um, Barnes & Nobles to read because the library sucked and Barnes & Noble had all the new books. But I couldn't afford to buy a bunch of books, so I would like – in magazines and stuff, so I would go in there and like, so I felt better about it. I'd buy like a two dollar at the time it was like two fifty for a you know a, a latte or something, and I'd buy one of those and I'd sit there all day on a Saturday and read. And I remember reading this this uh, it was like a copy of like Fortune or something like that. And this guy that was like in a suit, he looked like a financial advisor or something. And here I am, this young kid, and I don't I don't have anywhere near the knowledge I do now. And it had a thing that was forecasting the potential for the Dow to hit ten thousand. And he says, "Do you think that'll ever happen?" I said, well, of course it will. He goes, how can you be so sure? I said, because that's how the system's built. That's like that's what it does. Like it goes up, it goes down, but the overall trend is it keeps going up and it's cumulative. And I, I remember telling this guy, this has to be 25 years ago, right? I remember telling him one day, unless the the, the whole country blows up and everything ends, the Dow will hit a hundred thousand. And he just shook his head and walked away. But that's, you see, that's the thing. It's the devaluation of money results in the increase of prices. It's inflation. And it's inflation of, of equities. Everything's the same. And it's not really that complicated. But what I said this morning on Facebook when somebody asked about it was, uh, I said the problem is that markets go up on optimism, not results. And if the results don't catch up to the yeah. optimism in time, then you have a pullback. And then how far that delta is is how far that pullback is. So people don't buy the stock based on what it's valued at today. They buy it based on the fact that they're paying more than it's worth today because they think it's going to be worth even more than that tomorrow. Well, when you don't get to a point where those numbers start to come together, then eventually people start bailing. And the institutional guys bail first. 
they make all their profits, and then everybody else bails, and they buy back at the. I mean, that's that's the, they've been doing this over and over. Like if you're waiting for the end all be all of everything, unless we get hit by a nuclear weapon and an EMP or a C, uh, coronal mass suggestion or something like that, this is the game. They know what they're doing. They, they'll play this game forever. And and if they ever get to a point where people don't have confidence in the money anymore, they'll just create a new monetary system, like they've done six times since the country started. That's that's yeah. what they always do. Like like no, they can't do that. Well, they did it six other times and it worked then. You know, and I'm not right. saying nobody. Whenever I say this, people are like, well, it's, you know, they act like I say like everything's going to be sunshine, roses, and unicorn farts, right? And like, no, I've, this can all be really bad, but it's not. You know, people stood in soup and bread lines in the Great Depression. And people got EBT cards in the Great Recession. It's just it's the same thing, and it's a different way that things play out. Yeah, it's it's, it's amazing how uh, how it all works, and you're you know you, you can look at yourself like just a pawn in the system, or you do the best you can and and uh, build just, resiliency, man. You know, right? So you like, have to do that. Let's kind of try to get back on the topic here because we just went off into. Jack's La La uh, land of uh, economics. Um, you have a, a, a thing called food storage feast, which I've been talking about quite a bit on the show. Are there low carb options within that course that you have? Yeah, there there are, and as a matter of fact, we're moving uh, about fifteen new videos into the course. You know, there's a couple of three or four that get added a day, and those are um, very low carb. You know, focused on beef because we get a lot of people that. Um, store meat that buy cows that are, you know, paleo and they want beef recipes. So uh, I've been working on a lot of those. But yeah, there are, and there's quite a few freeze dried foods in there. And then definitely, you know, the standard things that people store. So it's, uh, it's definitely a work in progress. I've got a, um, a partner and a writer who's out in Montana and he, um, he adds content to it. We're just working on some lists right now to help buffer the the keto people because we do hear from them and saying, all right, well, I've got all these things, but I really don't eat any of it. What else, what else should I be putting in there? So, yeah, you know, uh, hey, I, I hear you and I'm, I'm there for sure. One of the things I think you should do is you should, you should make some biltong, just out of beef and then figure out some ways to cook with it. Because, you know, I got biltong from Peter Capstick's work and he always talks about how that over in, in South Africa where he was a professional hunter that it wasn't just, you know, kind of a walk around and eat it out of your, your game vest type of food. And he doesn't give any recipes, but he talks about how people actually would cook with it. And and I know what you're going to say, Jack, you make biltong all the time. Why don't you do it? Well, because I eat it. I, <laughs> I, 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 I can't. I have a problem, Keith. I, I am a biltong addict. I, I don't actually have withdrawal when I run out. But I'm like a selective addict. Like, if it is around... I am going to eat it, and I'm going to eat it all. But it's basically a cured beef product. So it seems like there probably could be some cool things you could make out of it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, and we um, we love um, working with things like that. I know uh, maybe it was two years ago I had a bunch of beautiful beef, and I marinated it. And I didn't know if it was going to work, but I marinated it in a lot of um, fish sauce, soy sauce, and uh, lemongrass, and then um, we dried that down, and um, boy, was that incredible. I mean, the flavors that came out of that, and, and that was the problem, just like you said. I mean, it was supposed to be, and it was. It was vacuum-packed and put away, <laughs> but my son, you know, he just kept going in there. I want more of the jerky, and we just ate the stuff up, and so we don't have it anymore. But, yeah, that's um, 
it's neat what you can do with things like that. And another thing, I mean, back in the day, people would would cure salamis, and that, you know, it's very technical to to learn how to to make charcuterie. But time, I mean, uh, old world salamis, they can hang for years and years, hams, all that, and they're just fine. I mean, that's why learning a little bit about fermentation and all that is is a good thing because and those stuff uh, they get just get better. Like the longer yeah, that ages, but like it's the right environment, the right humidity, and all to make that work. Because trust me, there'd be salami hanging everywhere in here if 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 like it didn't require special treatment in this climate that I live in. Because it's it's it, but that's another thing, right? So that's another thing. I'm not going to do well storing. Uh, I bought like one of these like it's like the North American version of like uh, Hamon Ibierco, right from Spain. It's like the closest thing you can get made in America. And instead of like a thousand dollars for ham, it's like eighty bucks. It didn't last, dude. It, it, I, it did not last. Like, I would be sitting in, like, you get into munchies at night, and I would just, like, I'd see the last slice I made in it. And I, I had it in my keyser hung up, like, you know, so it would stay nice. And uh, I, I'd be out there with the knife whittling more off of it. And, and next thing I know, I had a bone I was making soup out of. Uh, it's and, and I think that's the thing about food like that is it you don't have to really try hard to like it. No, it's kind of like aged beef. I mean, people don't know. I've been in the supermarket where um, you know you walk by the, and a lot of a lot of modern supermarkets are doing it. But you'll see this aged beef, and I mean, it looks it looks frightening. It's like black, and they're like, "What is that?" I mean, that's why is that like thirty dollars a pound? And I'm like, "That's aged beef." I mean, that stuff is. Uh, I mean, it's basically it's a friendly rot, and as it as it does, and as it loses. Moisture, it intensifies, it becomes super meaty tasting. I mean, that is what is awesome about it. And, you know, biltong is sort of similar in a way. So, yeah, th those are those are amazing things to eat. And um, Well, I mean, people, when we were kids growing up, we lived in a much cooler climate than I do here. And when you shot a deer, I had a basement, and we would take it down to the basement, we'd skin it, and we'd leave it whole. And we'd let it hang for about seven days until it started to get black in certain areas. And that's when we would cut it. And not only did it taste better, not only was it more tender, but it cut nicer. And you know what I mean. When you're cutting meat, meat at a certain firmness, you get much nicer cuts out of it than when it's, you know, f very fresh and it hasn't kind of stiffened up and what have you. Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting what, what you can do. And um, I like how you're into food, Jack. There's a lot of people that uh, you and I could talk about food for 10 hours. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no problem at all, man. Well, you know, it's like I'm going to eat every day, so I might as well enjoy it. That, that's that's kind of how I look at it. So you mentioned this a little bit already, but can we talk about how animals factor into this? Because, like, you know, if you want to store eggs, they store for so long. But chickens, pretty much as long as you feed them and give them water, they have a pretty, you know, they have like a about a seven year shelf life before they uh, they die, and probably about four years is when they turn into stewing hens. Yeah, no, I think, I mean, you talk about a good prep to have type of laying, laying a bird is, is awesome to have. And I go through staggering amounts. I mean, I cannot find, um, enough good eggs. So, um, having a source of eggs, I mean, I know we used to have goats and that was the greatest thing because we had, um, we had fresh milk all the time and then we've always had a, a nice source of raw milk. Um, but I think, I think chickens, And ducks. I mean, I've never kept ducks, and uh, obviously, watching you through the years, I think ducks are are a lot better. I think the eggs taste way better, anyway. 
But that's a great thing to have. And um, you talk about a, something that's a worthy thing to be working on is developing skills like that because it's not – I mean, you, you've raised chickens and ducks. I mean, it does take effort. I mean, people think that they can get um, chickens and just kind of throw them out in the yard and not do anything. I mean, it does take effort, and you learn what to feed them. And we've had eggs before where these ladies had the feed – and what they gave and uh, down to a science, like they were feeding sprouts that they would sprout in these trays along with and then letting them range out uh, in the garden. And the eggs were, I mean, they didn't even look real when you looked at these eggs. I mean, they were so rich. These yolks were amazing. I mean, you could add, you could make scrambled eggs, add a cup of cream to them, and they would still be a dark pumpkin color. Where yeah. you try to do that with stuff from the store, not going to happen. But Why yeah, I wonder. Right? I wonder how many people listen to this show and keep chickens. I mean, that would be an interesting thing to know. I think the majority that can do, like the people that don't are people that they just because of their circumstances in life, they can't. Uh, either they travel too much or they live in an HOA or they live in an apartment. And I would say, like, one of the things to really consider if you live somewhere where you are just prohibited from chickens is quail. Um You know, quail, you got meat and eggs. Like, chickens, I, I don't really feel like you have that. Yeah, your coals can become stewing hens and whatever. But when you only, like, when you have a hundred ducks and you decide to do some calling, it's a little, you know, mentally difficult, but it's like, it's, okay, I have too many drakes, I'm going to call. If you have four hens, you know that bird, it's a little harder to do calling then because, like, this is your pet. It's, it, it, it you don't want to be that, but it does. Uh, but, like, quail, like, it's like, they're like fish to me. Like, There's so many of them, and they're all the same. So, like, when one of your fish in a fish tank dies, you're like, ah, oh, a fish died. Like, you don't, like, you don't get attached to if you have a hundred neon tetras in a tank. You don't get it. Like, that's Bob, right? You, 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 <laughs> you know who he is. So, quail, like, they're easy to process from a psychological standpoint, but they're also easy to process from a um, a, a physical standpoint. You can process a quail in 30 to 40 seconds without any tools. Off goes the head, off come the wings, pop out the breast, grab out the drumsticks, and you're done. It really is that quick. It saved the heart. Don't throw the heart and liver away. Um, but So you could do that, but yet, then they produce eggs, and you get a quail from a baby chick. Let's start with an egg. You got an egg. You put it in an incubator. 21 days, you have chicks. Seven weeks, you have, you have birds that are – actually, six weeks, you have birds big enough to, to start culling your excess males. Seven weeks, you start getting eggs. Seven weeks. Yeah, that's compared fast. to 24 to 26 for chickens, and so and then my they, uncle was. I was gonna, let me finish there. Uh, they, so sure. every day you get an egg from a quail on average. If you keep 24 quail, you will probably get 23 eggs a day all month long, and you'll do that for 18 months till they go to their first molt. By then, you bring up another group. You take all of those older birds and you call them for meat. And you do that so that you have those birds hitting eight weeks right as you're calling. And you never have a slowdown in eggs as long as you keep your 14 hours of light with automatic timers. You have some of the best eating eggs on the planet, some of the best eating meat on the planet. And anytime you want some meat birds, just throw, throw, you know, throw two dozen in the incubator and, and hatch them. And in six weeks after they hatch, you've got another meat yield. So to me, they're like, they're fantastic for that. I don't do a lot with them because I got so much space. I can do ducks, I can do chickens, etc. cetera. Uh, but I'm actually looking at having quail eggs again, Keith. I don't know how close you follow my YouTube channel, but I got these four little bantam chickens. And I thought I was really smart. And I put them in my aviary with my quail. And I thought, so the bantam chickens will hatch the quail eggs. They eat the quail eggs. You're kidding. They eat them. Wow. 
And they don't wow. eat anybody else's eggs. Like, I gave them duck eggs and they hatched them. But, the, you know, quail eggs have that little motlid look to them. And right. I, I think it just looks so different that probably one ate one one time and went, well, that's pretty good. So, Yummy. Yeah. So, so then that one's like, well, let me show, because they all mimic each other, right? Hey, check this out. And that's it. Like, we get, like, one quail egg a week now. And every once in a while, a quail will spit out a, uh, like, a, a non-colored egg. And it's like a white, like a whitish tan. And when they lay those, the chickens don't eat them. So I know it's that look that they, you know. So uh, now, know. what's the time frame with ducks um, when you get them? How long does it take for them to start laying eggs? Twenty-four. Twenty-four weeks. Is that longer than yeah. chickens? Uh, about the same. Chickens will be twenty-two to twenty-six, depending on the breed and everything else. Ducks are like clockwork. Twenty-four weeks, you'll find one egg. And then, like, the next week you'll find, like, a couple. And then the next week, you'll, however many ducks you have, that's how many eggs you'll find. Yeah, and I was reading about ducks. Uh, I mean, they'll lay over 300 eggs a year. Some breeds, yeah. Yeah, the, the Mets are 300s, the Khaki Campbells, and some of the runners will lay 300 eggs a year. The problem we have with runners is, you know how we are in this country. Everything's about how does it look? How does it look? So... The runner ducks came up in China and India, and they were bred to be very thin, fast, easy to move. So they'd move them between the rice paddies there because uh, they, you know, they can walk like a penguin, so they're quick. And they bred them to be as high production in eggs as possible. Well, when we brought them into the United States, our whole idea is how can we make this duck win at the uh, 4-H show, right? So make the black shinier, make the curls on the drakes bigger. So we got so wrapped up in all the color schemes and trying to enhance the look of the duck. In their breeding, they, they kind of declined in the egg production. But still, it's still there because all the genetics were good. And if anybody worked with them, like if you got, you know, 10, 12 uh, ducks and a few drakes, and you selected from your high-producing uh, girls, I think you could get back up to like 320 eggs a year on average pretty quick within a few generations. And and their, their feed-to-egg ratio is huge because they're such a small bird, and they still lay a big egg. Yeah, well, th this is definitely a good thing to do, uh, be having these birds, because uh, look, at, look at all you learn as well. And, and then if you're smart about it, I mean, I, maybe it was on your channel, I'm not sure, but I saw this uh, video where these people maybe it was thailand or something like that but they instead of you know spraying and all that they use they use big herds of ducks to uh clean out the rice paddies and it's it's amazing to watch but they can be um you know, ducks are really good at, at cleaning the, the the varmints out ticks especially so yeah how neat you do you see that kind of behavior with just massive bug eating compared to chickens oh, yeah. Yeah, and they're, when they're babies, they're already there. Like as soon, the first time we put these new, this new batch out, they were immediately chasing bugs. In fact, before we got them outside, we had a, a fruit fry, fly infestation this year. We had a bunch of flies in the house. And, of course, as soon as we put the ducks in a brooder and there's a smell there, the flies go in the brooder. And these ducks were a day old, and they were jumping six, eight inches in the air and snapping them out of the air. You know, wow. well, they, were, they were three days old. They were one day out of the box from being shipped, and they were snapping these, these flies out of the air. Uh, so yeah, they're cool. You're right. That uh, that Thailand thing. I put that up. I don't remember where I found it, but I basically pulled it down and I added some subtitles to it. But yeah, that dude has a truck, and he like this is something like I don't see being very practical in the United States unless you're like maybe in some like rice country it might work. But like so they have a place where the ducks lay their eggs at night, and they get all their eggs, 
And then he backs his truck up and he like calls the ducks and they get on the truck. And it's like this stacked truck and it's like he's got like a spiral staircase in there. So he packs like 2,500 ducks in the back of his pickup truck. And then he takes them out and he puts, he gets, he charges the rice farmer to let them in the paddy in between, um, harvests. And they clean out all the pests, all the snails, all the problems. And then at the end of the day, he blows a whistle and he's ducks. Like you could never do this with a chicken. This is why I love ducks. They line up and they get back in the truck. He takes them back home, puts them back in their holding area, and then they, you know, they get the eggs in the morning, they take the ducks out to another place. Like, I, I, I'm not that level. That dude's like a freaking duck Yoda, man. I'm like a, I'm like a duck Padawan. This, that dude is like the ultimate, <laughs> you know, he, whoever taught Yoda, he's that guy in ducks. Yeah, duck whisperer, <laughs> the right? Duck, duck whisperer, my ass. This guy's a duck uh, telekinesis guy or something. Yeah, but, well, I saw I saw years ago up in, uh, in the high country of Colorado when we were living there, this cattle truck pulled up, and I had no idea what was going on. It pulled over on the side of the road. It was one of those double-decker cattle trucks, and they put the uh, ramp down, and I don't know what the number was, but it had to be well over 100 goats came out. Oh, wow, and, yeah. Yeah, and they just took them out, and they were over sort of in the median of the road, And they just ate that thing completely down, and then they would pack them up and take them somewhere else. And I had asked somebody, and the, the town actually, you know, pays them to come and yeah, on insane slopes and banks, and they eat all the stuff that people would just have to weed whack or spray. So it's it's pretty funny if you can if you can learn to goat whisper and duck whisper what you can do. There's uh, there's guys now doing businesses like that in uh, wine country, and they're running the goats in between the uh, rows of uh, grapevines in the vineyards. And especially people that want to say their wine's organic. Like, it's very difficult to control all those weeds and everything in between, you know, a vineyard because they irrigate everything. Uh, so, yeah, they just run the goats and they, they, they time it so that the grapevines are in a state where the goat really is like, I'm not, I'm not into that. I don't want that. Like, because goats will eat anything, as you know. But if you run them when the vegetation is really good on the ground and there's not much going on on the vine yet because it's either before or after a certain point, uh, they, just, they just go to town. And, of course, they leave little goat pellets. So you've fertilized, you've weeded, you've eradicated a lot of pest cycles, and it's amazing what can be done with animals. So I guess the, the, the upshot of that for what you and I are talking about today is you're probably not going to do it at that level on your one-acre homestead, but you can emulate those things. You can take your garden, and you can put eight garden beds in, and, and then make the width between your garden beds a little bit wider than your chicken tractor, and run your chickens in between your garden beds in a cycle, you know, and leave compost behind, and then put that compost right in your bed. I mean, it, that's, that's the type of way we could emulate this on a smaller scale, because... Uh, my truck can probably carry 2,500 ducks, Keith, but I ain't doing that. <laughs> <laughs> that guy prayed. Remember that guy prays at the beginning of it? You see him say it's like, like a little Buddhist prayer or something. I, I, yeah. I did not get that translated, but I know what he's praying. He's saying, oh, great Buddha, please do not let me be the guy that wrecks a truck with 2,500 ducks today in Thailand. That's, that's exactly <laughs> what he's saying. I don't want to be that guy. <laughs> yeah, that's, that was a funny video. I remember watching that. I was like, holy crap, I can't believe this. this, this how is this happening? I'll put a link in the show notes for people today, but uh, t tell folks like how can they how can they get more in touch with you and all the great stuff that you have? Sure, well they can uh, to check out the course we're talking about. They just go to foodstoragefeast.com and uh, they can figure it out from there. There's a lot of videos on the page that they can check out. Anybody can reach me at Keith at harvesteating.com and of course check out 
harvesteating.com and um, I do a little bit of Instagramming too, so it's Instagram.com slash harvesteating. And I've been following uh, what you're doing on there, so you regularly pop up on my uh, Instagram. So I've been digging the the rules for life there, Jack. Some of them are hard to listen to, but they're <laughs> <laughs> damn it. Why does he got to mention that? <laughs> Yeah, but, I, think yeah. Have, I think we have six more of those to go before we finish up that series. And uh, we were going to actually video uh, 25 today. And uh, between baby rage uh, from the granddaughter and the dogs and the airplanes, we decided we'll we'll punt and we'll get back to finishing up those videos. But, yeah, that's pretty cool. And I guess you should mention, since this is like kind of for, geared a little bit toward the red meat eaters, you also do have the paleo beef course, right? Yes, definitely, the paleo beef and uh there's some there's some tasty ones there. Did I ever send you that that charred beef with chili recipe? I do not believe you did. Yeah, I'll send you a link to that. Uh, there's a video for it. And that that was um, that was one that I actually was modeling after. I mean, a lot of people don't even know about the country called Bhutan, but it's it's near China and India, and they have uh, they do a lot with dried beef and um, chilies and things like that. And I saw this uh, this recipe. And I, I emulated it and, and was uh, just so impressed with the food. I mean, it was incredible. Basically, beef and chilies and ginger, um, and that's in that course. That is, uh, that's worth its weight in gold. As a matter of fact, I probably need to make that again. But tonight I'm having an amazing French beef stew. So, uh, Very cool. Excited. I'll make sure there's links to everything in the show notes uh, for everybody today. And I appreciate you being with us today, Keith. Jack, thanks for having me, man. All right, folks, that was a great interview, as always, with Chef Keith Snow. I always love having him on, and it was kind of a twofer. We got into some economic stuff as well. Um, that certainly wasn't planned. It's just Keith has a, a keen interest in all of these things. Like I said, he's an actual prepper, not a guy trying to sell stuff to preppers. That's why he's been part of this community for so long. Anyway, um, if you enjoyed this show and, the, and you like the work that we do overall, please consider becoming a member of the MSB. To do that, all you got to do is go to the survivalpodcast.com. And click on Members, and you can see how to sign up there. You'll get discounts to a whole bunch of really great companies selling a whole bunch of really great stuff that you're probably buying here and there anyway. If you use those discounts throughout the year, you'll more than pay for your membership. Most members tell me they get, you know, they, they, they pay 50 bucks a year, and they end up getting 100 bucks or more a year back in discounts. So they'll be members forever. You give it a try, you might be too. You can learn more again by going to the Survival Podcast dot com and clicking on members and remember I do do a discount for uh, first responders, uh, law enforcement, Peace Corps and military service folks. All of you guys can get a discount. Just email me before you join. Put TSPC service discount in the subject line and tell me uh, a little bit about your service. One or two sentences is all I need. Send that email to Jack at the Survival Podcast dot com. Next up today, uh, one of the ways you can always really support this show in a completely painless way is by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z.com. tspaz.com. Go there and see all the reviews that I've done on Amazon. You can see the deals of the day on Amazon. Really great stuff. And as long as you start your shopping from there, you help support us no matter what you buy. I've got a product that I brought back for you today. I brought this around a bunch of times. Um, it is the UTG Ranger Field Bag. This is a big bag. You can put a small person in this bag, throw them on your back like a backpack, and carry them away. Uh, it really is that big. And, and In fact, one of the complaints in some of the negative reviews is it's too big. I guess these people can't read the dimensions. The dimension is 35 inches by 13 inches by 12 inches. 
Uh, a very well-built bag. I, I've used this bag extensively. It's heavily used in the airsoft and air. Uh, I'm sorry, the airsoft and the paintball world uh, because those guys have a lot of gear and they play a lot and they have to. They need a big rugged bag to carry all their gear in. And uh, I've talked to the guy where I get my beer kegs filled uh, down at the airsoft place. Uh, you brewers, best place to get your, uh, your your CO2 tanks filled for your kegerators is the airsoft and and uh, and paintball store. Um, so I've talked to him and I mentioned this bag and he's like, "Yeah, man, every other guy has one of those down here. They're normally about fifty bucks, and I think that's a great deal on them. They're on sale right now for thirty two dollars a bag. Here's the other end of that one though." Um, I put this out this morning, and I guess they didn't have that many left in stock. Amazon is still taking orders for them at that price, but they're now shipping like four to six weeks out. Uh, I guess I'm in here plenty of time for Christmas, though. And at $32, these bags are a steal. You can check it out today. It's getting the UTG Ranger Field Bag. You can find it at tspaz.com or just at the survivalpodcast.com. But remember, you can always help support the show, no matter what you buy, as long as you go to tspaz.com before you shop online. Now... That brings us to our song of the day. This is, um, I, I bet this is one of my favorite songs of all time. Like if I made a top 50 list of my all-time favorite songs, there's no way that this song wouldn't make the list. If I said, if you said to me, what is your favorite kind of power ballad song from the 80s? It might be in the top five. If you said, what is your favorite song by Twisted Sister? Uh, it would be, you wouldn't even have to think about it. And I like some of Twisted Sisters' other music, uh, but this song is called The Price. And even if you don't think you've ever heard it, you might even think you don't like Twisted Sister. You've probably heard this song and you probably like it. This song's about the sacrifices we make to achieve our goals. Uh, Dee Snyder of Twisted Sister was on the verge of a breakthrough uh, when he wrote this song, but a long struggle to reach that point. Snyder joined the band in 1976, and they gradually built a following in New York City area with their live shows. Their first album, Under the Blade, was let out in 1982, followed by You Can't Stop Rock and Roll in 1983. It was during the recording of You Can't Stop Rock and Roll that Snyder wrote the Stay Hungry album, including this track. The dream did indeed come true when the album became a huge hit. Uh, led by the singles, We're Not Gonna Take It, that's the one most people are familiar with, and I Wanna Rock. But when it was written, this dream was anything but a sure thing. For Snyder, the price of pursuing his dream on rock stardom was steep, as it meant time away from his family. In our interview with Snyder, he explained, I have been away from home for four months, and my wife and my son and not even a, uh, was not even a position to pay for a phone call. That's how hungry the band was. I wrote The Price inspired by those feelings at the time. The spark for this song came when his, the sister-in-law of the band's guitarist, J.J. French, phoned the studio and Dee answered. Snyder recounts in his Song Facts interview, she said, How's it going, Dee? I said, Well, I'm feeling pretty blue. I haven't seen Suzette and Jesse in a month now. Uh, she, and she goes, Well, I guess that's the price you have to pay. I handed the phone to JJ and grabbed my handheld tape recorder. I went into the bathroom and sang the price, just top to bottom, metallically. Not even, uh, not every word. The whole song, though, just sort of poured out of me. It was released as the third single in the Stay Hungry album, followed by We're Not Gonna Take It and I Wanna Rock. It didn't chart, but the song became a fan favorite and the group's most popular ballad. I think, again, it is one of the greatest, uh, 
songs of all time, honestly. It, it, is, it is fantastic. The words are pretty powerful. Let me give you some of them here. How long have I wanted this dream to come true? And as it approaches, I can't believe I'm through. I've tried, oh, how I've tried, for a life, yes, a life I thought I knew. Oh, it's the price we got to pay and all the games we got to play. Makes me wonder if it's worth it to carry on. Because it's a game we got to lose, though it's a life we got to choose. And the price is our own life until it's done. Time seems to have frozen, but the mind can be fooled. As days As the days passed, I discovered destiny just can't be ruled. Hard times, oh, hard times, for the price, yes, the price, I thought I knew. Um, this song should be inspirational to anybody that hasn't made it to where they want to be yet. Everybody that ever did. Every, everybody that anybody ever looks at today and goes, boy, it must be nice to be them. It must be easy for them. They went through this. They went through this. There, yeah, there's the 1% of people that were born into the 1% and that they were just handed everything. Don't worry about them. They don't matter. They don't count. Everybody that started with little to nothing, that got to where they really have what they want in their life, every single one, I'm going to say it one more time, every single one had this moment. They had this moment. And like the guy that wrote this song, this moment came right before everything changed. The, the thing is, you get the gut check, and the gut check, and the gut check, and the gut check. And you never know if it's the biggest gut check. But when it is, it's always right before everything changes. It is the price you got to pay for the life that you really want to live. And with that, this has been Jack Spirico with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. 